0: Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by Dialed Health. You might remember hearing from Dialed Health head coach Derek Till on the podcast back in September, when he shared some great information on optimising your riding and training. If you've not already listened, then you should definitely check it out. Dialed Health are providing strength training for cyclists worldwide and as always they're going to be getting the year started with the Dialed Health Shred, a 30-day fat loss challenge made specifically for cyclists. So if you've ever wanted to drop those excess pounds then this is your chance. Coach Derek will be providing all the information you need to help you understand how many calories to eat and how to track your food along with the specific strength training that supports your riding either with or without gym equipment. At the end of the 30 days, there'll be a male and a female winner and their prize will include a $250 Mike's Bikes gift card with international shipping and prize bundles from Specialized, Kyoku Recovery Shakes, Pinnacle Nutrition Group and Kate's Food Bars. In order to be eligible to take part, then you need to be a member of dialedhealth.com. There are monthly and annual plans and as a downtime listener, you can get 30 US dollars off the annual plan by using the code DTP30 at the checkout. Once you're signed up, you can just click the tab at the top of the homepage for the Dialed Health Shred and get started. Head to dialedhealth.com now to start moving forward and making progress with your fitness into 2021. The Dialed Health Shred starts on January the 4th, so don't hang about. That code again is DTP30, all uppercase. Don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the show. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. It's really easy to do with buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. While you're on that page, you can also join my newsletter for a weekly dose of interesting bike related stuff, competitions, products I've been enjoying and more. If you want to support the show, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. There's t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies. They're all 100% organic, printed to order and shipped with no single use plastic. At this point, all the proceeds go back into the podcast for equipment and software to keep improving the quality of the show. So a massive thank you to everyone who's bought something from the store already. If you're not, then please give me a follow over on Instagram or Facebook where I'm Downtime Podcast. It's a really good way for me to be able to interact a bit more with you guys and girls, so the more who follow, the better. Alright, as it's the week between Christmas and New Year, I thought it would be good to have a long one for you to get stuck into. So this week I'm joined by Paul Aston to find out about his life in bikes, all the way from his early days of dirt jumping through to his time at Pink Bike and beyond. I'm going to split this episode into two parts. The first of those covers Paul's privateer times from leaving school and deciding he can live off the eight hundred pounds in his bank account, all the way up to racing World Cup downhill as a privateer. The second part, which will be dropping tomorrow, picks up from when Paul received a call from Pinkbike looking for a European technical editor, which chat about what goes into a good review, writing those critical reviews like that Envy review that you might might well know, uh, his dream build, some setup tips, and much much more. So, without further ado, here's part one with Paul Aston. Paul Aston, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Uh, fantastic, Chris.
1: Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. If, as we just mentioned before the show, if you don't turn on the news and just look at the world with your own eyes, everything's fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're in finale as well, which is never a bad place to be, right? Yeah.
1: It's a uh, Pretty special place. The weather's pretty good. A little bit overcast today, but it's still I'm not sure 18, 19 degrees.
0: Oh, I still wow. haven't turned
1: the heating on yet this this year.
0: That's pretty good. So the trail's in good condition at the moment?
1: Yeah. Um this year the trails haven't been in great condition compared to normal. We missed the main spring spring season, which is when right. most of the trails sort of get cleaned up and ridden by a lot of people, but that was cancelled due to COVID. Um so yeah a few of the trails are a bit overgrown, but overall it's dry and if you know which which
0: trails to go to, there's some great stuff to ride. Awesome. But you uh you haven't always been in finale. Where where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in the UK, just outside Birmingham. Uh, between Dudley
0: and Wolverhampton. Excellent. Well, how? Yeah, you're not, Matt, you've not picked up a uh, particularly strong accent from that part of the world. Yeah, I didn't really have.
1: I didn't ever have too strong an accent, really. Um, and I moved out to Europe when I was 19. Okay, so
0: yeah.
1: I had to start trying to speak more clearly then t- so that uh, Frenchies speaking in their second language could could understand me.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about those early days then and and how bikes and mountain biking came into your life.
1: Well, I always liked riding from as long as I can remember, maybe five, six, seven years old. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I would just go ride my bike around the streets with my mates, do skids and jump off curbs and that kind of thing. Yeah. Then there's an amazing BMX rider in, in the village I grew up in called one called Keith Brazier. And he had, uh, some incredible jumps behind his house and a little mini ramp. So you used to go down there and watch him. And there's a few of the little jump spots around. we used to go to and yeah, just jump off things. No idea what we're doing. Then there's a guy called Peter Cartwright who lived over the road from me. Dead opposite, uh, opposite my house. And I used to see him going out every Sunday at nine o'clock with a big gang of guys. And they turn up on all these cool, cool mountain bikes. And, uh, I didn't know where they're going at the time. They just ride off at nine o'clock and come back at four or five o'clock in the evening. And I think it was my mum that went over and asked him if he could, uh, could take me riding. So I think reluctantly they're much older guys. They were like, 15, 16, and I was maybe 10. Uh-huh. And they, I think they reluctantly took me out on a Sunday. I just spent the whole day just <laughs> maybe 500 meters behind them <laughs> down the street or on the railway tracks and the canals, just like peddling my heart out, trying to keep up. Nice. Uh, and we went to a few different spots, uh, an old BMX track in Wordsley, um, Kimber Edge, which is still... Quite a popular riding spot with some downhill tracks, and then we rode home. And when we got back home, he gave me a copy of MBUK magazine.
0: Nice. And then I was
1: like, "Wow, this is a thing! I didn't realise it was a thing until then." <laughs> I was like, "Wow, it's like a whole, a whole sport, whole industry. There's a there's a magazine with people doing jumps in it." <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah, pretty much from that day when he when he gave me that magazine, I I really got engrossed in all kinds of bikes and just riding and yeah, trying to make a career out of it eventually.
0: Yeah, well, and you got into racing quite early on as well, yeah.
1: Yeah, we had a really good scene in Womborn. It was a really small village, but it produced quite a, a lot of good riders. Uh, there was Steve Parr from. UK gravity enduro and British downhill fame. Mm-hmm. He lived maybe 200 meters away from me. A guy called Dave Richardson Davro, who work, who's now the manager at Leisure Lakes in West Bromwich. And when he was 17 or 18, he was, I think, national dual slalom champion, and he was a downhill racer, and he raced some World Cups, I believe, into the. Yeah. Uh, I think he injured his ACL and stopped racing after that. Yeah. And a few other guys, including Lee Pincher. People might remember his name. Uh, When we were kids, he was beating Brendan Fairclough and Josh Briceland week in, week out in juvenile category. Uh, So, yeah, there's a bunch of really good riders and I got involved with steve and steve parr used to take me to to some events and races and then shortly after that lee pinch's dad uh brought a van and he, they were quite serious about it and they would drive us all over the country
0: yeah well you have good access i guess from there you're pretty central and you, there was a, the dragon downhill series was going on then and kind of midland super series some of the specialized stuff like all the the shropshire venues there's a lot of good quality downhill racing to get involved in i suppose
1: yeah lots and lots actually i jumped i jumped a few years uh initially i wanted to do some downhill racing because that was a Uh cool thing to do and we found out about the you just mentioned yeah the midlands used to be the midlands electricity super series sponsored by midlands electric (laughs) and I was too young to race the downhill, so I had to race racing. I had to do the cross-country race. You had to be 12 to race downhill, but I think you could start the cross-country from eight Uh or did a a few cross-country races when I was 11. My mom and dad taught me to. Then the next year I was eligible to race in the juvenile category. Yeah. And. My dad, being a bit cautious, maybe didn't want me to go straight into it. So he took me to Hawkstone Park to watch the first round of the series to see what it was like and see if I thought I could do it. Then Hawkstone Park was a super short track, maybe a minute, minute, minute and a half long, hardly any elevation. There was one like little rocky slab to ride down. But it looked super simple. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. So. We entered the next race, which is at Hopton castle. Um, and I turned up there and I just thought this is the biggest mountain I've ever seen. <laughs> There's no way in hell I can ever ride down this. And you had to push up back then for practice. And my dad and my brother pushed my bike halfway up the hill and then they got tired and they're like, ah, oh, you, you don't need to, you don't need to do the practice. You'll be fine. Just ride down. So I did half a practice run in my first race.
0: Nice. And how um, did the race go?
1: Well, then I then I got on the the tractor up left for the for the race run. Mm-hmm. There's two race runs. Then I remember being halfway down the first run, thinking, "I, I don't know how this track can be so long." <laughs> and I was just like sat down pedaling over roots and through mud and uh, puddles and. Rocks and all sorts, and I just thought i can't I can't believe how long this track is. I think my run was like nine or ten minutes.
0: whoa,
1: um but it was a long track back then, even for the top riders. I think it was between four and five minutes for the elites, yeah, but yeah, it was maybe i don't know eight, nine, ten minutes. I just remember thinking, yeah in during my first ever race run, like how can a track be this long? It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs>
0: amazing yeah i guess it's not very steep is it i guess hopton they make the use of the hill it's much steeper now than it used to be they used to
1: traverse the hill a lot more and also back back in the day i think that was 1998 or nine Downhill tracks were you know a lot tamer than they are now and there was a lot more pedaling and flat sections and yeah nowadays it's generally a lot steeper and faster
0: Yeah. Fair play. So you, I mean, yeah, it obviously got under your skin and you carried on riding and racing a huge amount. And at some point you took the decision to leave school to, to kind of continue following that passion. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did, I think two or maybe three years racing in juvenile and then youth category. Uh, I had some quite good results actually. I won a few, of Midland Super Series and some Pierce races in in juvenile category. Yeah. Then I had an Orange Patriot, which I brought off Davro, actually, which was the pimpest bike I'd ever had. It was I think the first <laughs> edition Orange Patriot, Gloss Black, all the good parts on it, Hope Brakes, uh, Manitou, Expert, Carbon, TIE Forks. The Whoa. Nice. Um, actually, my parents and my grandparents, I think, all chipped in to buy me that. I think it was £1,000. And then we've, we used to go to this jump. I was, I was racing at the time and getting quite serious. And we used to go to this famous jump spot in Starbridge called The Covet. And there's this infamous 30-foot drop-off, which Davro used to do. Who brought the bike off. And me and my friends were doing the drop and then we just kept getting bigger and bigger off it and eventually I just basically jumped and landed at the bottom of this bank. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could have been like, I don't know, it might have been 40 feet, which is 12, 12 meters maybe. Yeah. I basically landed on the bottom, at the on the flat at the bottom. <laughs> and the shock ended up inside the swing arm instead of do wow. it <laughs> and long story short my dad said i can't believe you've destroyed that bike that we brought you for racing on um i'm not buying you another one we're not buying you another one that's it you'll have to sort it out yourself <laughs> so then i was a bit stuck i didn't know what to do so i brought uh i brought a bmx off my mate for 20 pounds 20 quid and decided riding BMX because that was literally all I could afford to do
0: then. Yeah, cheaper, don't break as often, all oh, that's good stuff.
1: Yeah, it's quite a good bit, quite a good BMX actually. It's a all well, the guys from the Spinny, which used to be a famous jump spot. Uh, I think that was one of the first jump spots in the UK, or maybe even the world. The guys from there would always pretend the bikes had got stolen and tell the parents the bikes have been stolen. Get get the insurance payout. In reality, they've sold the bike to the mate, who's then um, painted it a different colour. Um, and then they get, they get a new bike on their insurance, and the mate gets a cheap bike, and I brought, I brought one of those bikes, um, which I'm not proud of now, but yeah, I brought a BMX for 20 quid, and I just started riding that. I was going to the Spinney every, every evening after school, Ride in further afield to all these different jump spots. Used to ride with Tom Skelding a lot, who was one of the top dirt jumpers in the country. And yeah, Hale's Owen, Pisces, Wolverley. Loads of cool trail spots. I just really got into the BMX riding and a lot of skate park riding as well. Then, I'm going off on a tangent now. Where was
0: I? it's all good like yeah the decision to leave school i guess and Uh, follow that passion of bikes
1: yeah i thought the last year at school when i was 16 doing gcses was amazing because we got three i think three months holiday in total which the first six weeks are meant to be exam leave and studying for exams (laughs) but i just went out on my bmx i went on my bmx every single day since the day exam leave started to the day I went back to school uh, to sixth form in September Nice. literally every single day didn't have a day off riding digging jumps practicing tricks and I got it in my head at the time that I was gonna go to the x games and do the dirt competition x games dirt that was my my big goal then yeah I was quite serious. I used to go down to the jumps on my own in the day uh, before the other guys had finished school or people got back from work. And I am just going like train, train, doing tricks. So quite a big trick bag back then. Uh, And I was sort of focused on going to the X Games. And I did the first half day at school at Sixth Form, which was the induction day. And I thought, this is rubbish. I hate it. (laughs) <laughs> then I went the next day and did two, did two lessons. And then at the end of the second lesson, I just thought, I'm just going to the jumps. It's way better. So okay. went <laughs> walked out of school, didn't tell anyone that I was going, just went home, got my BMX, went to the jumps and then told my mum that evening, I said, mom, I'm not going back to sixth form. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I don't have to go. It's my choice. <laughs> How and was the my response? Mom, my mom, well, my mum was really against my idea. My dad just said, "I'll just do whatever you want. It's fine." <laughs> Fair play. I think maybe caused a bit of a rift between them.
0: <laughs> and that, so, how did that like? How did that progress then? So, you've you've walked out of school. You've got this X Games goal in your in your mind. How do you work towards that? And how did it how did it go?
1: Well, my my mum forced me to go
0: back uh, for one more
1: day at school. Okay. She said, do a whole day and make sure you don't like it. I think were her words. So I set off walking to school thinking, right, I'm going to make sure I don't like it. (laughs) That's one thing I can do. So, yeah, I spent the the whole day at school please my mom i think and then left and just thought "No, nah, i'm never going back and just rode my bike just went to the jumps went yeah, you know digging jumps practicing tricks and i don't know what caused it but i decided to get another mountain bike because i think i wanted to do some racing again mm-hmm. so i took the small savings i got my bank account and i bought a I brought a bike, I think it was on the Southern Downhill
0: Forum. Yeah, I remember that.
1: Uh, I brought a specialized big hit frame and then somehow negotiated all the parts from another bike except the frame for a really good price. And built up this this specialized and started riding it and then I sort of started wheelie wheeler dealing bikes and like Buying and selling different bikes to improve the bike that I had. Okay. And over a couple of years, I built up to having quite a good, uh, orange 222, I think. But I started off, I think the first bike cost three or 400 pounds. Yeah. And I, I like traded up <laughs> until I was on a, a maybe a 2000 pound orange. Good effort. Pretty good. Um, But yeah, when I got their first big hit and I was on the Southern Downhill forum, I also saw a post from someone who's become a great friend, Simon Baggett, who now lives in Wales. And he was working part-time and just riding his bike. And he was maybe 23 or four at the time. Mm -hmm. And he he was advertising to look for friends to go riding with during the week because all his mates were at work. Yeah. Then long story short, I ended up going riding. Me and Simon would go out two or three times a week. Uh he would come and pick me up every time in his in his little van and we started going all over the place, going to uplift days, going to Fort William, uh, camping. Yeah, know, just go all the time and just mostly just push up hills and just section stuff. So we just practicing every every time we we went out just Yeah, push to the top of the hill, take a big bag of food and spares and then ride each maybe 20-meter section of the track five, six, seven, ten times Mm -hmm. until we've got all the lines perfected and and then we go home. That was it. We never do any full runs. We just ride every section ten times or try and do, you know, gap routes or practice setting up for corners. And that was it really, just... Two guys out in the woods just practicing <laughs> practicing riding bikes.
0: Yeah, living a cheap life.
1: Yeah, well, one thing I thought when I left school, I got, I think I had £800 pounds in my bank account, half of which came from a, a windfall from the bank after it was taken over by another bank. Uh-huh. And I thought, uh, I can leave school easily and I can just live for maybe four or five years without doing any work <laughs> on this £800. Pounds. <laughs>
0: Optimistic,
1: naive, and young, and hadn't realised how much cars cost, and how much if I was paying rent to my parents, how much rent would cost, and how much the bikes actually cost, and all that stuff. Yeah. My my theory was it costs like three pounds to get in the skate park once a week, and the train tickets a pound each time to go to get the train to go to the skate park, and everything else is free. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Fair enough. It's a good logic, but it doesn't quite pan out, does it? No, <laughs> no. Nah, nah. So did you did you quite quickly run out of money? Like how did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I think I maybe did a year of just riding my BMX. And then my dad had started a an eBay company back in the early days of eBay.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, sorry, he hadn't started the company. It started selling off his old scale electric collection, which had a big scale electric collection. Yeah. And that turned into a business basically. So him and my dad and my brother were yeah just selling all sorts of toys on eBay, toy trains and cars and different things. And then I got the job packing the parcels. So I'll do two days a week, packing parcels and taking them to the post office Annoying all the old ladies who were queuing up to get the pension. And I was stood there with like 65 parcels, <laughs> bucking each one in separately and filling in all the paperwork. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I just did that. And I, I think my whole childhood, I was always doing a lot of jobs for family and friends, like washing the cars, washing my parents' cars, cutting the lawn, uh, decorating up my grandparents' helping them out in the garden. It's mm-hmm. bits and pieces, you know, and yeah. you're kid, and you're doing little things for five pounds or 10 pounds here and there, which all sort of, sort of keeps you, keeps you going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so where, yeah, where do you go from there then? Cause at some point you, uh, you turned to the van life and headed out to Europe to, to kind of ride further afield.
1: Yeah, actually that started, at a place I mentioned before, Edge, which was one of the sort of local riding hotspots in still nowadays. And I remember being there and there's, there's a group of older guys that are always there. And one guy was talking about going, going to Leger, Morsin. And he was desperate to go. And all, all these other guys, it turns out, had all dropped out. They were meant to be going on like a big group holiday. And everyone dropped out. And, uh, this chap, Tom wanted, was just looking for anyone to go with him. And I was like, I'll go. And he looked at me. They were all like in the, in the twenties. And I was, I think I was 17. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. And he looked at me a bit suspiciously thinking <laughs> maybe I don't want to take this kid with me to another country, but yeah, eventually my parents paid for a week. We went to the boomerang in the for a week. Yeah. I think it was three hundred and fifty pounds the entire week, including flights and lift pass. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. But he'd Tom had picked the last week in the season, which was I think the first week in September. Which was the week where only Leger and Morzine main lifts are open and the rest of the port of the sleigh is closed. Uh uh-huh. So first of all, he was a bit frustrated about that, that we were only getting to ride uh, Leger and Morzine. And back then, there were maybe five tracks in total. Yeah. And they were all just rough, just all braking bumps. But we were doing 15 to 20 runs every day because we were just so excited. (laughs) Just lap after lap after lap. But one thing I always remember was the first day we got there, built the bikes up, went up the hill, on Chavan in the old, the red egg telecabby yeah. used to be there. Yeah. I did one run down. And I was just completely amazed. And then floating back up in the flying eggs back to the top of the hill. I just remember thinking, this is the best, this is the best place in the whole world. This is incredible. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to live here forever. And I didn't really have a specific plan when I thought that, but, you know, it was just uh, in the back of my mind. So yeah, we did that week there with Tom. Tom snapped about 300 spokes in his rear wheel, <laughs> which cut into his riding time. Uh, but yeah, we had a great time. We absolutely destroyed our bikes and ourselves, just riding through braking bumps, run after run after run.
0: Nice.
1: Then the next year, I booked a one-month holiday there to stay at Chalet Pappy, which used to be quite famous for seasoners.
0: Yeah.
1: And I went out there with Matt Simmons and Liam Mason Beanie, who's one of Brendan Fairclough's S4P gang. Yeah. And I also met a few other guys out there, including James McKnight and Pedro Peter Ballin, who became really good friends. And that second year I went out there, we just. We just, again, just rode every day. The whole Port de Soleil was open. We were going to Chateau, Champry, Morgans, uh, Le Crozet, all these different places. And we just thought it was amazing. We just ride as much as we could every single day, nine till five. And also lots of drinking and partying when we'd escaped our family homes, maybe, and just learned what alcohol tasted like and what girls looked like. (laughs) especially the French girl seemed more attractive maybe to <laughs> so, us. Yeah. Lots of drinking, not much sleep, lots and lots of riding.
0: Yeah. Ligloo um, was, uh, was definitely the place to ruin your next day's riding in Léger around that time.
1: Yeah. Actually the second year I was in Morzine, So we we're ruining, ruining our lives in the cavern bar and opera. Yeah. 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 I remember walking back from opera one day, being sick on the way home, getting to the chalet. And it was so late or early in the morning that I thought, ah, I just won't go to bed. I'll just start getting my bike ready to go riding. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it was like half past six, seven when I got home. And I just thought, I'll just get the bike ready and uh, have some breakfast and get on the lift at nine. Good effort. Yeah. Also remember some days that year being sick out of telecabine windows (laughs) um (laughs) waking up in all sorts of different places yeah maybe not maybe not my best moments but yeah we had a lot of fun
0: yeah definitely and was that kind of was the racing starting to get more serious on the downhill side of things then or does that come a little bit later because you work your way up to to racing world cups for a bit right
1: yeah at the time i was racing a lot in the uk but when we went to, when I went out there the first couple of times, I just flew there, so we had no way to get to races and the internet wasn't that useful back then, so it was quite hard to find out about races and events happening and we, could, we couldn't we could get to them anyway. So the next year I went out, I went out for a month again. I think that was the year I met James actually. And we went to a Swiss Cup in Switzerland uh, with, because James had a van that year. James had, I met James and he'd gone out there in a little transporter. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of Kiwi guys all living in transit vans going around racing, including, I think, Blenkinsop, Mike Skinner, Nathan Rankin, Glenn Hayden. And they told us there was a Swiss Cup, so we went, on this this trek to the Swiss Cup, which is absolutely incredible in San Luke, I've never seen anything like it. It was twenty centimeters deep in dust that was just like wow. flour. You, you couldn't follow anyone down the hill. It was because you just couldn't see. Amazing train to the top. It's just absolute paradise in in the valley in Switzerland. So yeah, that was my first experience of a the race in Europe. And then me and James both came back home after the first month in June of the season, back to work and normal life. And I think we lasted about five days before we pulled each other up and said, Oh, let's just get back in the van and go, go back out there for the rest of the season. So he jumped in his tiny van with way too many bikes. We got like mini motorbike, downhill bikes, BMXs, road bikes. Nowhere to sleep, but plenty of space to store the bikes.
0: Good effort.
1: Yeah, we just went back out to went back out to morzine and we just then we started finding out about all these races like French Cups, Avalanche Cups, Twist Cups, German Cups, and we just started going to as many races as we could. I just loved it. I just loved the the racing in Europe compared to the UK, where in the UK it's just a muddy field in the middle of nowhere with usually a muddy track and a bad uplift where in Europe they're in ski resorts and there's like a town and there's people in the shops, hard standing to park your van, camping facilities, showers, a chairlift that that's gets you to the top so fast. It's more about not doing too many runs than not being, not being able to do enough runs for practice. Yeah, I just, I just fell in love with it. It was, it was fantastic.
0: And was it, was it kind of an intention for you? Did you want to work your way up through the ranks and get to be like a top world cup racer or were you more just doing it because it was something you enjoyed and you wanted to be part of that scene?
1: Uh, I think me and James were quite focused on racing world cups. So part of the thing we were doing was trying to get to races that had UCI points. Yeah. And I got back then, you needed one UCI point to race a World Cup. And I got one point at, I think it was the German National Championships on a really crappy track that was 12 hours' drive away from (laughs) Morzine. But (laughs) that was a fantastic race. They had speakers all the way down the track from the start. And just as I dropped in for my race run, Rebel Yell by Billy Idol, which is one of my favourite songs, came on. Awesome. And I had it all the way down the track.
0: That's amazing.
1: And I was just absolutely buzzing, like, in the zone. I think that's the first time I was properly in the zone, at, like, when nothing can go wrong. Hitting all your lines, you're not thinking, you just, just on a charge down the hill, and it was absolutely incredible. Yeah, and I got 10th place and got one, one UCI point. And then... Ended up going to Slamming a few months later and racing there, which I think that was the last round of the year that year.
0: And you did pretty well, didn't you? Is that right? Yeah, I I
1: was having a really good time there. We've been racing basically every week through through the summer. And I think I crashed in qualifying and I qualified maybe 60th. But the the main problem was, I remember my brakes. I think they were quad brakes back in the day, Uh and by the time I got to the bottom part of the track in qualifying run, the brakes were just completely melted, like the brake pads were (laughs) just melting. Which I hadn't been, I hadn't found out in practice because we were just riding sort of short sections. Yeah, when you came into the field section, Sam Hill famously just drifts around all the uh flat grassy loose corners which are actually way way steeper than the look in the on any film mm-hmm. must be a black a black level ski piece wow i remember just going into that towards the corner just holding the brakes with both uh, two two fingers on each lever <laughs> just as hard as i could pull them just thinking i'm never going to slow down for this corner <laughs> yeah, it's had a huge, absolutely massive wipeout. Uh I think it was the first left on the on the piste. Got back on, got down to the bottom, and got a massive sort of roar from the crowd. I think I went into second place at the time. Yeah. It, and everyone had seen the big this big crash on the on the big screen. <laughs> and so yeah, ended up finishing sixty-ninth of that race. Which
0: and that was there's a lot of people at those events back then. Like, I think it was almost 250 entrants.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of them were really not very good,
0: but still, (laughs) yeah.
1: Actually, I overtook someone in my practice in there in my qualifying run there. I overtook the guy in front of me in qualifying.
0: Yeah, so you must have felt pretty confident after that, really. Like, first ever World Cup, 69th place on a track like Schladming as well. You must have felt like there was an opportunity there to kind of progress.
1: I did feel like a boss that evening. The <laughs> <shortcut>. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was absolutely loving it. And then a few weeks and then I was all prepared to race next year. And I got a little sponsorship from solid bikes at the time. Mm-hmm. And then they were sort of stepping up to offer me some more stuff for the next year. And then the UCI changed the rules to needing 20 points to race, uh, which then put me completely out of, out of, uh, being able to race the world cups the next year. Yeah. I did get a few more points. I maybe got to eight or nine points through that year, but I really struggled to get towards 20. Uh-huh. And then the next the following year, I got onto a trade solid bikes, had a trade team. So then I was on the trade team. And I went to the first World Cup in Maribor that year. And I thought, well, last time I crashed and I came 69th. So if I just cruise down, well, not cruise down, but if I just put in a solid run, I'll easily qualify. And I it—I quali- I can't remember where I qualified, but I was about one and a half seconds off being 80th place.
0: Oh man. Yeah. Cause that was the cutoff then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people complain nowadays when UCI make it more difficult for people to ride to race World Cups, which is fair in some ways. But after they introduced that twenty point rule, the level had gone up massively, right? In in the in less than two years. Because yeah, like I said, in, in the first year, I overtook the guy in front of me in in qualifying, and he just like he was just a complete average bike rider.
0: Yeah, thirty seconds. Even on a World Cup track, it's uh, it's quite a lot to make up thirty seconds, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it probably wasn't it was probably halfway down when I when I overtook him. Right. So quite a low standard. Yeah. A lot of um I don't know what words to use, like smaller countries were submitting teams or submitting riders to go there. Yeah, where mountain biking wasn't such a big thing at that
0: point in time, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. But yeah, after the twenty point rule came in, it got suddenly got a lot more serious. And then after I didn't qualify at the first one, I basically just put way too much pressure on myself to, I was like, I've got to qualify at the next one. I've got to qualify. And just put too much pressure on myself, I think, and just, I didn't qualify again after that.
0: Yeah. And the, that was kind of how the season went, I guess, like a, a, a pretty, uh, a tough year. And didn't you have a big accident that year as well?
1: Yeah, actually that was that. Slamming the last race of the year. So yeah, I didn't qualify in the first few European rounds. Then Solid didn't want to pay for me to go to, to do the American rounds because I hadn't proved myself at the first rounds, which was Uh sort of fair, I guess. But I was really frustrated at the time by it. So yeah, back to Slamming for the last race of the year. And after doing well there before, I thought, yeah, I can... I can do good here. I can definitely qualify. I think I can get a top 50. might even get a top 40. I was really sort of on a charge, buzzing, buzzing to get a good result. And I just had a little crash in practice, just over the handlebars, coming out of the corner, like drifted out of the corner, but then hit a drainage rut, which was built just after it with like my front wheel sideways, like drifting sideways. Yeah. Um, and just went over the handlebars, and it was a pretty hard crash, but nothing, nothing major when you're 21, 22 years old. Uh, but that turned out to be a broken spleen, and I did a few more practice runs, and I started feeling terribly, terribly sick. <laughs> it's quite, quite funny actually. I went back to the team, told them what was happening. they are like, "Oh, you're fine. Just maybe just a bit dehydrated or tired. Just have some water." I was like, no, no, something's wrong. Like I feel, I feel weird, just strange. Then walked to the St. John's ambulance myself. They get my shoulders hurt and I thought maybe I'd done something to my shoulder. And they, they're like, no, you're fine, mate. Just go back. Just go and drink some water (laughs) in German, obviously, or something along those lines. And I just remember thinking now there's something, there's something wrong here. And my stomach hurt a little bit. So I thought, right, I'm gonna to lie to them and say that my stomach hurts, because they'll definitely take me to the hospital if I say something's hurting, like inside. Yeah. So I was like, ah, oh, my stomach really hurts as well. Oh, I feel sick. I did feel sick, but my stomach didn't really hurt. And then the guy sort of rolled his eyes, like, okay, we'll we'll take you to the to the hospital. Walked me to the ambulance. As we opened the ambulance door, I just remember projectile vomiting into the ambulance nice and then i just passed out jeez now i woke woke up in the hospital with i can't remember how many maybe eight or ten doctors around me not nurses doctors and i remember thinking hmm eight nurses would be bad but eight doctors (laughs) is really bad yeah Um, something's gone wrong yeah i ended up being in being in the hospital for two two weeks
0: Jeez, that's pretty full on. Yeah. yeah. Um, was it quite a long recovery from that then?
1: Yeah, well, it's two two weeks in the hospital. They told me to lie down and not do anything. And after about four days, I thought I've got to stand up and stretch my legs a bit. And I got caught, caught by one of the nurses standing up. And he like <laughs> shouted at me. And two minutes later, like one of the, top doctors came in and he was just like you've got to lie down like if you damage the spleen it bursts you could die within five minutes so i was like okay i'll maybe i'll take this more seriously and then i just yeah lay in bed for the next 10 days and then my brother came over and rescued me got me out after two weeks i didn't get me out but i was released after two weeks And he got me on a flight back home, back to the UK. And I think I spent, I think it was three months doing nothing. I said do nothing for three months. Then three months doing like basic exercise, non-dangerous exercise. Wow. So like walking, basically, jogging, swimming. And then I should be able to start riding after that gently for another three months. So yeah, basically a year in total, nearly a year in total.
0: Yeah, that's full on. So did that lead you to sort of reconsider where you were heading and what your plans were?
1: Yeah, it was quite frustrating at the time, actually. I basically got dropped by solid bikes because I couldn't commit to racing the year after because I didn't know... How long it would take to recover? Yeah, and they said, uh, "If you're definitely going to race, we'll send, we'll sort you out a contract and give you the bikes. But if you can't guarantee you'll be racing at the start of the year, we we can't give you all that stuff." In hindsight, I should have just lied and got the contract signed. And if I didn't make it to the first few races, it would have been would have been okay. But yeah, basically stopped stopped riding solid bikes, and I felt a bit disillusioned really by the whole racing thing and trying to get sponsors and how to promote yourself, how to get money, how to pay for it all all that stuff. Yeah. And by this time now, I was, I was living in Moorzine. I got an apartment there, I got a girlfriend there, was working a lot on building sites and the money on the building sites is really good. Just doing laboring and, just carrying rocks around for people and just yeah, carrying rocks and planks of wood and that kind of thing. Just getting bossed around all day. Uh but yeah, it's pretty good money. And then I was getting into skiing, I got a trials motorbike. And I just thought ah, I don't want to spend all this time uh spend all this time just focusing on mountain bike racing, there's there's loads of other stuff to do. Yeah. So I just sort of went off it for a few years and just yeah, just worked, sort of worked my way up in the building industry. Um got like a nice apartment, yeah, just rode trials motorbike a lot, did loads of skiing, learned to speak French, yeah, just doing doing other other things really.
0: And that's I guess can be get it can become quite tempting, right? You you've got a nice place, garage full of toys. Was there any was there ever kind of a risk that you would settle at that point or was it always obvious to you that you'd want to look for something else?
1: Well, yeah, I did have a bit of a life-changing moment that year. I can't remember what, not that year, but a couple of years. After a couple of years of doing what I just said, I did have an amazing big apartment. We've got a huge garage. i got a motocross bike, trials motorbike. Downhill bike, um, cross country bike, skis, snowboard, climbing equipment, uh, camper van, or like a converted camper van, an Audi Quattro (laughs) drift car. Nice. And a golf TDI, golf TDI. Yeah. And I sort of got, I was earning more and more money. I was earning really good money at the time. I think 350, 400 euros a day working on site. Uh huh. And I got like a whole, like all the tools you could ever imagine for building a house. So yeah, I just got really deep into that and then sort of had a a midlife crisis when I was 27 or eight, maybe 28. Yeah. And thought, this is ridiculous. I'm just working all the time to pay for all these toys that I now can't use. <laughs> Which doesn't make sense. So then I, I just, uh, I thought I've got to get out of this and basically sold everything. Put all the rest of the stuff in the, in the sprinter camper van that I had and drove down to finale to work as a bike guide.
0: Big change.
1: Yeah. I was basically thought I just love riding my bike or love riding bikes. and I put myself in a position where I'm now not riding. So I need to go back to basics and
0: get back to riding my bike. Yeah.
1: And you, did bought. you do
0: a, a season in Whistler guiding as well, coaching?
1: Yeah, that was the same year. So I, in the winter, I did a British cycling coaching course, uh-huh. a level two coaching course and um, my wilderness first aid certificate. Went down to Finale, the three months guiding there, here actually as i'm still here mm-hmm. <laughs> um this was 2011 then i'd secured a job at bareback biking in canada in whistle right. so i nice. out there in I think, that was, I think that was the start of may that year and i i worked there from may until end of october so the full, yeah. full season
0: uh-huh and did you enjoy the the kind of coaching and guiding side of things? Do you, do you get something out of helping people learn to ride better?
1: I did really enjoy that at the time. First of all, just going to Whistler is just <laughs> unbelievable. And that was a great company. And we turned up, they picked us up from the airport. They'd sorted out, helped us sort out the visas. They'd got two bikes for us from their sponsors. All We turned up and they're just all in bits um scott frames fox suspension dt swiss wheels everything all in brand new boxes ready to go so amazing that's sort of a great start and they paid me the first month to only go and learn the trails (laughs) amazing that's pretty good (laughs) job (laughs) and then and then started guiding uh after the first month
0: yeah so as a as a kind of a coach or a guide what's the biggest mistake that you see people make on a bike
1: oh that's uh biggest
0: mistake well like the most common mistake
1: the most common one that i see is people having their brake levers
0: too steep okay too far down, point, pointing yeah. too too much. Yeah. Too, yeah, too much to the ground. Yeah,
1: I don't know why a lot of people do this. It seems sort of a thing to do for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, it just makes them really hard to reach.
1: Yeah, and if you you see it all the time here in Finale, where it's generally quite steep trails, mm-hmm. and if you've got your brake levers pointing steeply down, then it makes it really hard to ride because you yeah, you basically can't reach the levers and it's rolling your wrists over the top or over the front of the grips. Yeah. And, yeah, basically makes it really hard to hold on to and makes your wrists very unstable.
0: All right. That's yeah, a good bit of advice. Position. Yeah, yeah. So uh, during all of this then, I guess it's the time that, like Enduro is growing and EWS is becoming a thing. And that caught your eye, yeah?
1: Yeah, exactly. I, it was whilst I was in Whistler that uh, I really enjoyed the guiding and the coaching, but it wasn't quite hitting the spot of what I wanted to do. And then I was thinking, yeah, I really want to get back into racing. I really like the racing and everything that goes with it, the way. I'm sure a lot of racers will agree. Once you sort of set your mind on a goal to to get to go to a race or to a race season, you start to do everything else in your life a bit better. And you're always looking for these little uh, little improvements. Like you try and get try to go to bed a bit earlier. You don't have dessert. You try and eat a bit better. You force yourself to get up and do that training session. Yeah. You force yourself to kit your camper van out or your van out as best you can so when you get to the races you've got all the stuff you need uh, you think about getting spare parts you know you start to think about improving everything in your life
0: yeah it's a positive Something. energy i guess isn't it
1: yeah well without that i'm i just i'm, well, I'm pretty lazy anyway but okay <laughs> without like a goal like that i find that i get quite you know, there's no reason not to have another beer or not to go for a pizza or to do that training session. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I really wanted to get back into racing for that reason, really just sort of pushing, pushing yourself in all different areas. And while I was in Whistler, I really got into peddling, which I've never really done before, except Mm -hmm. like I've never done cross country riding or. Uh, enduro riding, always just some BMX and downhill. Yeah. So through the guiding work and with the other guys who lived in the in the in the chalet, we do loads of pedalling. I thought oh, this is great actually. Pedalling up all these big technical climbs, going out doing 30, 40, 50 kilometer days, exploring. I started to really enjoy that, and I did a few of the two knee Tuesday races in the Whistler Valley where I think you pay $2 to race and there's a cross country race and you get a free beer and dinner at the end. Sounds good. Which is pretty good. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I did pretty good in some of those, like surprised myself at how well I did. Um, there was quite a few top XC races or Canadian and American XC races doing them. And I was quite, Close, really, to them. Okay. Sort of surprised myself how fit fit I was. So then I came back to Europe and then decided that Enduro looked like the new cool thing to do and thought I've got the sort of all the skills for it, really, like downhill skills and, uh, yeah, the sort of cross-country or endurance fitness.
0: Yeah.
1: And it seemed to be sort of kicking off then all, all over Europe and all over the world. There wasn't an enduro world series then, but there was talk of it happening. Um, but UK enduro was getting big. Super enduro in Italy was massive. French enduro was big. So I thought of I thought of like a two, three, four year plan of, yeah, start racing the local stuff in the UK, then start going out to the big super enduro races. And if I can get sort of a good start on these races and start getting some good results, if or when an enduro world series appears, I should be in quite a good standing to, you know, to get a ride or to get paid to get involved in those.
0: Yeah. And how
1: did it go? Yeah, pretty good actually. Um, I kept injuring myself <laughs> that first year. I th- That first year, Sandy Plenty, who's now from the Trailhead. Yeah. Now owns a Trailhead. He used to work at Leisure Lakes in Wolverhampton. He gave me or supported me with a Yeti bike. I think it was mm-hmm. a Yeti SB66. And... I just kept going over the handlebars on it all the time because <laughs> it was just tiny with a really steep head angle. Yeah. And I think I did two separated shoulders and a hand injury that here. Nasty. But I did get some good results at some super enduros. And then the following year I got offered, actually I got some really good results at super enduros and beat Some riders that I never thought I'd beat, who are now doing really good at in the Enduro World Series. Okay, I won a couple of stages. I think I got third at one race and fifth at another. Yeah, with like carrying these injuries and spending most of the year not not riding. Mm -hmm. And then, as I hoped or planned for, the EWS was announced for the next year, and I got offered a deal to ride for a team in italy called life cycle or life cycles mm-hmm. on ibis bikes and yeah i went to the first ever ews in pontala that's that's pretty cool to go to yeah i, bet. I think i finished like 60 something there with an average day
0: yeah
1: and then we went back to the campsite we were living in in san remo and got home and then the team manager told me and two of the other guys on the team. He just said There's no more money now for the for the rest of the year. We can't afford <laughs> to fulfill you well, we didn't have a contract, but we can't afford to fulfil your contract for the rest of the year. You'll have to come to all the races yourself. Jeez. That was really frustrating. He got a really nice van with really nice wheels on it and a really nice conversion on it. <laughs> and there was still enough money for him and his girlfriend to go to all the races and to go to America Mm. and all that stuff. And we all, we all got sort of kicked out basically, but I did go to two or three more races that year that I just drove to on my own and sort of sorted myself out when I got there. Yeah. Some of the sponsors were quite good. Actually, They, they forwarded some spare parts and bits and pieces So that sort of kept kept the bike going. And that was that year. I did. Got a few good results, I think. Nothing spectacular. Still struggling with shoulders and going over handlebars all the time on tiny bikes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's great. Absolutely amazing to be involved in the start of that, in, in the start of the EWS, which has become maybe the biggest one of the biggest things in mountain biking it seems
0: yeah definitely
1: sort of almost equivalent or equivalent to World Cup downhill and crankworks and all the big all the big things yeah so then despite that year being rubbish and being dropped from the team and struggling to get to the races and being injured i was really focused then on the next year so moved back to the uk started working with my brother I uh, lived in a house with my brother in Dudley and just got really quite sensible about trying to race well the next year. Um, got a specialised Enduro Twin Niner, which was a really good bike at the time, and was quite methodical about Yeah, I got spare parts to get me through the season. I sorted out my uh, re converted camper van for the mm-hmm. third time, maybe. <laughs> to make it more usable. And when I, yeah, I went out and started racing and I can't remember what races were that year, but I did pretty good in Latweil was one of the first ones. Yeah. That was my best result. I got 43rd there. I think I've got some top 30 stage stages. Then oh, what happened then? I can't remember. It's all become a bit of a blur. But yeah, I went to a few races. Did really good. Felt like I was doing really good. Um, I was really happy with my progress. and I thought, yeah, I could probably get a, a contract for the next year or at least like decent support from some brand. And I seem to be moving in like a good sort of forward direction. Yeah. And then in september that year just before the last race i got a phone call completely out of the blue while i was at the the pump track by my house which had just been just been built a few weeks before with a canadian voice on the other end
0: all right that's it for part one of this episode with paul i hope you've enjoyed listening A massive thanks to Dialed Health for supporting this episode of the show. If you want to join their Dialed Health Shred and get fit and lean in January, then head to dialedhealth.com now and join the program. As a downtime listener, you can get $30 off their annual program by using the code DTP30 at the checkout. That's DTP, all uppercase, 30. The Dialed Health Shred starts on the 4th of January, so make sure you get signed up soon. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show then you can grab yourself a t-shirt, sweatshirt or hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. All the proceeds go to help improving the podcast. You know what to do by now, keep on spreading the word about the podcast, keep telling your rider mates and share the episodes on your social media. It all helps me to keep this thing going. Also if you've got a couple of minutes a review over on iTunes is really helpful too. All right we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon but until then happy new year and get out and ride